Welcome to a very special edition of the Sharp Angles Podcast. This is Warren Sharp, and I am joined by four distinguished guests and draft experts from SharpFootballAnalysis.com, and we're going to be talking to them all things NFL Draft. We're talking about guys who are going too high or too late, guys who are rising, guys who are falling, whether it's justified or not, what player to team matches they're most confident in in their mock drafts, which player props have the most value right now today that you guys can go ahead and bet immediately so much more than that tune in it's going to be a great show we are going to be talking draft props with you all we're going to be talking about mock drafting we're going to be talking about everything that we can and of course taking all of your questions uh, we might mix some in at the bottom of the hour and then come back uh, at the top of the nine o'clock hour with some more questions. So for sure, we're going to be able to get to hopefully as many people as possible in here. Um, And we're looking forward to trying to help you guys out with some of the thoughts that we've had over the last um, couple of months as some of our guys have been prepping for this. And I'll go ahead and share a little bit of what they've done. We've got Rich and Dan on here. Rich uh, Rebar, obviously, and Dan Pizzuta have been doing our team needs pieces, examining the rosters from top to bottom as they currently exist, walking through all 32 teams, understanding what they need, what they should be going after in the draft, uh, considering their draft capital and their needs. Of course, Rich has also been covering all types of things with you know, dynasty drafts. He's been ranking all of the players as it relates to the upcoming fantasy football season. So the top you know, 10 to 20 wide receivers in this class, the top running backs, the top quarterback. So he's been doing all that homework. He's been, you know, spending a lot of time with that for a while now. And then of course we've got uh, Brendan and Ryan, and these are, you know, two, I don't say diamonds in the rough because that's a, um, I don't mean it as in, in a negative way whatsoever, but these guys don't have a lot of recognition, but they've been working on mock drafts for years and years and years. And it's way more competitive than, I ever thought when I first started looking into mock draft, that whole world is just very competitive, trying to get things precise and accurate and correct. And uh, Brendan is number one per the huddle report over the last three years, sorry, over the last five years in draft accuracy. And Ryan is number three. So both these guys are very good. They've been doing good for a while. And it's like people that ask me in the off season, you know, well, what's your record in, you know, betting. And I can tell them my historical record. I'm very proud of my historical record. I've done really well. And every year I feel like I can do that, that same rate, but it's not necessarily the case. And every year is a little bit different and you never know what's going to happen. And so um, you temper expectations. You try to be direct and honest with people as to what you can expect. Last year I had a great year betting and last year, these guys did great in their mock drafts and I'm hoping they do great again. Uh, this year as well. So with that said, I want to kick it over to the guys. Ryan, I'm going to start with you. Do you feel more or less confident entering this mock draft than you have over the last few mock drafts? Yeah, I feel a little bit less confident than last year, but at the same time, I'm not really buying into this narrative that's been drummed up over the last week or so. that This is going to be like one of the most unpredictable drafts ever because this is my 19th year covering the draft. It's my 18th year participating in that huddle report contest that you mentioned. And I think this is about 19 straight years that about a week before the draft, we hear how it's going to be the most unpredictable draft on record. I think basically what happens every year is, you know, the 
more of like the national media who isn't necessarily dialed in on the draft um, as much as we are, who are doing these mock drafts every week. Uh, they come to it a little bit late and it feels a little bit chaotic to them and they start saying that kind of stuff. So that that's nothing new. I don't think this is going to be as crazy as they're saying it is. But I do feel a little bit less confident because we don't have the quarterbacks. Whenever you have a lot of quarterbacks in the draft, it's a little bit easier because there's a very there's a very small number of teams in any given year that can take quarterbacks. So like last year with the third pick in the draft, some people missed that. But if you had Mac Jones going third overall – you probably had the Patriots taking Justin Fields or Trey Lance. And so you were just like flip-flopping those picks. With the other positions, if you miss one, there's a whole bunch of other teams that could take that player. So it can sometimes set off a chain reaction. So I think that's why this year may be ever so slightly less less predictable than last year, but not to the degree that some people are saying. Okay. Brendan, same opinion or a little bit different? No, pretty much the same. I would say less than Petiria last year. I mean, I'm pretty confident in about 20, 25 players that I think will definitely be in round one, but I'm less confident in matching the players to the actual teams than I was last year. Um, I think last year we just had a, a much better feel of who the top player was at each position. There was a much more consensus, so you just need to fit the team with the biggest need at that position, and um, you knew who that player was, if that's what the need was, and you could mash that up um, you know, d- right down the line, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end, offensive tackle. Everybody we thought was going to be uh, the top player at that board went first, um, and it's not the, the case this year. So I would say I'm, I'm confident in the puzzle pieces, but um, putting the, the puzzle together feels like more of a challenge this year. Okay. Well, let's dive right in. Uh, as we're talking about some of the latest happenings and discussions and comments, I want to start with a question as to which players have seen their public consensus opinion rise the most over the last week or two. And I want to kick it over to you, Rich. Uh, go ahead and let us know who that player might be whose opinion has risen the most. And do you agree? Do you think NFL teams will agree? Rich, you're on mute. Okay. Um, all right. Let's go to let's go to Dan. Dan, what which player do you think rose the most over the last week or two, and do you agree with how he is rising up the mock draft sheet? Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily rose the most, but I think we've kind of come back down as or come back around to uh, believing Derek Stingley is good, uh, which kind of feels like it was something that we came into, like what we would have put into the draft season. And then there were a couple of weeks where like maybe he's not good. There's all the talk about his you know production, whether he's been injured and how much is he actually going to be on the field. But when Derek Stingley is on the field, he is quite good. And I think we're just kind of coming back around to that fact. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to go into like, he's still plus 250 to be the first cornerback taken, but if you look at his under, it's minus like 175 at nine and a half. So he's, he's pretty solidly locked in as, as a top 10 pick, uh, which I think like as much as last week, you probably were often seeing him knock to like the Vikings at 12. Um, but it kind of seems like we're just back around to Derek Singley, very good at football. And uh, that's probably where it should be. 
All right, I'll jump back to you, Rich. Um, I think you were looking at Desmond Ritter. So, any thoughts on uh, Ritter rising up the board? That's my that's my fault, guys. There on that one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Desmond Ritter is the guy that's obviously I think that is getting bonus points for doing things that the other quarterbacks in this class weren't asked to do that will have more NFL carryover. But he didn't necessarily do them well enough at least in the context of handling him as a first-round prospect. I mean, despite playing in an offense that kind of relied on more pro-level tasks, he still needs to be better at a lot of those things in the pros, and he still takes a massive projection there. I mean, Cincinnati ran concepts uh, that, you know, Sam Howell and Matt Corral didn't weren't asked to, to do, but Ritter also exits college in the 49th percentile career completion rate, 48th percentile in career yards per pass attempt for all prospects since 2000. That was in the AAC uh, you look at him in that system in the conference he played, and he was pressured on just 23% of his dropbacks. That was the second lowest rate in this class. However, when he was under pressure, his on-target rate of 51.8% was by far the lowest in this class, uh, a full 10% lower than the next uh, highest quarterback. And then you look at any time he had to punch up in terms of competition, that showed up. You know, when you face Georgia in 2020 and average 5.6 yards for pass attempt, uh, or Alabama this past season averaged four and a half yards for pass attempt, uh, the athleticism, the management skills are there. But in any other year, Desmond Ritter is a second round plus type of like flyer guy, like Kellen Mond was a year ago, um, in, in ter- and, and not shouldn't be handled as kind of a guy that is like an altering a franchise, which is what he could potentially be drafted as. We'll see how much, you know, fire to the smoke there is. Yeah, he's shifted all the way up to minus 125 to go in the first round. So he's definitely risen up a little bit here. Uh, Jump over to you, Ryan. Which player for you fits this mold, and do you agree with it? Yeah, I think it's Charles Cross. I mean, he seems to have risen. uh, I've had him in my top ten all along, and other people have too. So he hasn't had like a huge rise, but it seems like – uh, the general consensus has now come around to the fact that, yeah, he's definitely locked into a top 10 slot. And I, I agree with it. And I think one of the reasons why we've sort of ended up here is that when you look at the three top tackles on the board, they kind of all fit into slightly different molds. Like Evan Neal, 20 years ago, I think would be the unquestioned number one overall pick because he fits into that, like, he's kind of like that Orlando Pace, Walter Jones type of profile of player. Not saying that he's on that level, but back in the era when everybody wanted to go search for the next guy like that, he fits that profile of a player. And not necessarily everybody wants that anymore. There's a little bit more emphasis on athleticism, obviously. And then with Iki Aquanu, some teams view him as a better fit at guard or a better. some people view him as like a right tackle only. He's really a mauler in the run game. So, you know, there might be certain offenses that see him as number one because he fits that. But Charles Cross, I think, just kind of has like a nice blend of everything. So I think, you know, maybe he's not number one on the most boards, but he's probably number two on a lot of boards because um, even if he doesn't have like the best trait for what you want, he does have good traits for any kind of scheme. And so I think that's why he's kind of a lock for the top 10, because we've got a lot of uh, a lot of teams up there needing an offensive tackle. And so even if their preferred guy isn't on the board, Cross probably slides in as someone that they also really like. Yeah, Cross is minus 400 to go in the top 10. Uh, his player over under was seven and a half with better juice than it currently is right now. And like you've mentioned, you've had him going number six for a long time. I think maybe the entire set of mocks dating back to February to the Carolina Panthers, which, by the way, I did not mention this up at the top. But for those of you guys unfamiliar with the way the huddle report does their mock and their contest overall, the final report, get the final mock for each contestant goes in on Wednesday night. 
So we will have up at Sharp Football Analysis the final mock for Ryan and the final mock for Brendan on Thursday, published Thursday morning, which is obviously the day of round one. So we have their most recent mocks up at the site now. You can go look at them, but they will make one last change for their final mock, uh, and that'll go up on Thursday morning to the site. Brendan, same question for you. Uh, Which player consensus opinion has risen the most in your opinion, and do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's Jamison Williams in the past few weeks. Uh, his odds have moved um, to be drafted in the top 10 from 15 to 1 all the way down. Last I checked today was uh, plus 120. I mean, a lot of this is due to um, him being ahead of schedule, uh, with reports saying that he might be ready for training camp, um, him posting videos showing that um, his rehab is, is going very well. And so teams would have had him number one on the board on their boards without that injury. So now um, that it seems to be ahead of schedule, it seems like they're starting to come back around um, that he is the best receiver on the board or of his class. So I could definitely see him going in the top 10. Whereas a few weeks ago, um, I was thinking he would be middle to late, late first round. Yeah, right now you can get him to go at least up on some books, plus 120 to be the first receiver selected. Um, and if you want to take him in to go in the first round, it's minus, sorry, top 10, it's minus 200. And, you know, you guys have him both mocked inside the top 10. His draft position, I believe, was, let me see what it is right now, nine and a half under plus 100. So if you think he's going to go before pick number nine uh, or nine or before, you may just be better off making him be the first wide receiver to go in the draft uh, if that's. I'm sorry, we're talking about Jamison Williams, not Garrett Wilson. My bad, got off track there. Um, Let's get back on track, though, and do the exact opposite of what we were talking about before. Let's talk about who is falling the most and whether or not you guys agree with that opinion. We'll come back to Garrett Wilson later on. But, uh, Brendan, I know I'll just stick with you. You've got a guy who has been falling a lot, and ironically enough, um, he was significantly higher in, you know, your guys' draft boards – earlier in the process um and now i'm think i'm seeing peter king has dropped him i want to say was he completely out of the first round for peter king's latest mock some of the lines were moving today because peter king released his mock and yeah he's not even listed in king's first round uh brendan which is that guy for you yeah so that is who it is it's george Karloftis. peter king did not have him in his first round he's seen his draft proposition go from 16 and a half to as of today, it's 22 and a half. Um, that's one I don't really agree with. Um, Carl just has a lot of the metrics that teams, especially analytic teams um, typically look for. He has a PFF pass rush grade of 90.6. His relative athletic score is 9.21. Uh, he just turned 21 years old this month and he plays a premium position that a lot of teams covet. So, I have a hard time seeing him fall completely out of round one, even though that seems to be the growing consensus lately. Ryan, same question for you. Yeah, I mean, I'll talk about Kyle Hamilton, because obviously we've seen him. It's sort of been more of a steady slide for him in mock drafts. And I don't know that anything necessarily has happened. Obviously, he had the uh, somewhat disappointing 40 time, uh, ran a four point. Uh, five nine forty, which was a little bit disappointing, but not, it's not in a range that you would think would automatically lead to him sliding down the boards. What I think has probably happened was in the media we just kind of overrated a little bit how teams would view him because although he certainly was a playmaker at Notre Dame, 
there's a lot of people in the league who are really skeptical about DBs being that are too tall. And at six foot four, he certainly qualifies. And you know, basically, the logic behind that is it, it certainly makes sense. If you're six foot four and you're trying to line up in the slot, which you know that's certainly part of a safety's job in most schemes, and you're going up against a wide receiver who's five ten, five eleven, you're not able to match his movements. Like you're just not as quick as him. Um, so although Kyle Hamilton is certainly going to be a great matchup against tight ends in coverage from the offensive perspective, you can probably manipulate the way you line up to get him lined up over smaller guys and create some mismatches throughout the game. And so I think that that's probably what's happening is that teams are thinking that, yeah, he's going to be a playmaker for us, but there's also going to be some moments throughout every game where he's going to end up being a little bit of a liability. And so I think that's why he's probably sliding outside the top 10, maybe somewhere in that 10 to 15 range is where we may ultimately see him go. Okay, I'm going to stick with you, Ryan. Along those same lines, is there a player with a negative trait that you think may end up sliding further than expected come Thursday night? Yeah, for me, it's Jordan Davis. And the, the negative trait is basically just his um, conditioning, his ability to stay on the field. We'll th- just throw out a couple of stats here. Throughout his college career, he played 40 or more snaps only three times. And to sort of highlight just how concerning that is, compare that to Vita Vea, who in his final season at Washington, obviously he's a similar build, a, a big nose tackle, big athlete. He played 40 or more snaps in nine of 13 games his final season at Washington. So he was someone that uh, went relatively high with a very similar physical profile to Jordan Davis, but he had already proven his ability to stay on the field and be effective for 40 plus snaps per game, to be a three down player. Whereas at Georgia, uh, Jordan Davis was pulled off the field on third downs. In fact, on third and long last season, third and five or more yards to go, he played only 7% of Georgia's snaps. So he was not put on the field in pass rush situations at all. So the traits are really nice, but can he, can he be a pass rusher on a regular basis? We don't know. We've never seen him be asked to do that. So especially as teams are starting to get smarter, a lot more analytically minded teams, I wonder if they're going to be really cautious about over-investing in a player who, although he has the traits, there's a big question mark hanging over arguably the most important part of his game, which is pass rushing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Now, obviously he is not an edge rusher, but we do think at the top of the draft we're going to see inevitably a run on these edge rushers and then probably we're going to see a run on offensive tackles so i want to ask this question to both ryan and brendan what is the next position that you could envision after edge and offensive tackles see their runs that could potentially have a run on and then which player as a result of said run might go earlier than we currently expect so brendan what would your answer be um, for me, it's wide receiver. Uh, I think there's a clear line of demarcation of the top five guys. So if the first one goes at eight or potentially even seven to the Giants, um, we could start that run because there's a lot of teams um, right after that that are going to be looking at wide receivers. Um, and there's a lot of teams in the early 20s that are looking as well. So there's a range there between seven and eight and the early 20s that um, – Teams in the early 20s might not be able to wait that long to go get one of these five guys, so they might have to move up into the 16 to 19 range. 
Uh, so we could see all five guys go from, say, eight to about 16. I think the guy that, that gets pushed up is the guy I, I talked about earlier is Jameson Williams. I, th- I think he, uh, he could still or he could see himself go in the top 10. Okay. And uh, there's another receiver that we're going to talk about later on. I'll throw out to you guys as well. But, um, Ryan, same exact question. Which position and then who do you think it, it benefits that might go earlier than we currently are expecting? Yeah, I certainly agree with everything Brendan just said, but just to be a little bit different, I'll bring up the cornerbacks. The reason why I think that there could be a, a run somewhere in maybe the late first round is because there's, there's a pretty clear-cut consensus on the top three, but then once you get past that, I think it's going to be a little bit more team-specific as, as far as how the rest of them are ranked. So if the top three are off the board and you want to address cornerback, you might only have one guy on your board that you're willing to take within the next, you know, 20 picks or so. And so you're going to feel a little bit more pressure to get them. Like if you're a team that wants to do a lot of press man coverage, maybe Kyir Elam is that guy. And maybe you want to make sure you get him. There could be another team maybe that's, you know, doing a little bit more zone coverage. They really like Kyler Gordon, who had a ton of experience in that role in Washington. So because it's, because it's less likely that a team's going to have, you know, four or five cornerbacks that they're comfortable with, I think there's going to be a little bit more pressure on them to try to address that quickly once that top three is off the board. Okay, let's change direction a little bit here. And I want to know, what is one thing, Rich, that has been said publicly and it's picked up steam recently about a player in this draft class that you absolutely disagree with, that you think is complete nonsense? Here's your chance to come out and tear into any other hot takes that you've heard or takes that have been backed up with data and information, but you just totally disagree with. Well, I don't know if it's recently getting steam. It feels like the steam might be moving in the other direction, but we'll see what happens on Thursday. But basically that since the start of this process, that Kenny Pickett has been a locked in, you know, first round quarterback and he was the QB one for a long time. We'll see what plays out. But really when you look at Kenny Pickett in the context of this class, I mean, he still doesn't even show up really highly against this competition either. I mean, you look at him, he's the oldest of the top quarterbacks, the front end prospects in this class. I mean, he threw 38 passing touchdowns his first three full seasons as pit starting quarterback. That's the same amount of touchdowns Sam Howell threw at age 18 uh, you know, you guys talked about the negative traits a quarterback might have, and you're going to get the hand size thing with Kenny Pickett and hear about that. And to back it up, I mean, he had 38 career fumbles. Uh, you know, if you go back to when they, you know, played, I think it was North Carolina in the rain this season, you know, you see just how much he struggled in that game. And despite even having his massive final season, I mean, he still closed with 51st percentile completion rate, 52nd percentile touchdown interception rate, 29th percentile in career yards for pass attempt. Um, and then you look at all of his pressure stuff and under pressure, he's 12 to 14 in this class in terms of completion rate drop uh, from a clean pocket. And then a loss of three and a half yards per pass attempt under pressure, which is 11th out of 14 guys that were invited to the combine. Um, and anytime you watch Kenny Pickett and you watch him play at all, the only one thing that stands out to me is Jordan Addison, like we've talked about uh, on the podcast a <laughs> hundred times. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to ride. Kenny Pickett's going to ride that Jordan Addison wave here, probably to being a first round draft pick. There you go. So, Kenny Pickett for sure uh, for Rich. Dan, how about you? Yeah, I will just endorse everything Rich just said uh, to start. But um, the the one thing that I haven't really been able to 
really get my mind around is the people who think that Drake London can't separate. Um, and he gets kind of like pigeonholed as this contested catch guy uh, because he's kind of big and just kind of looks like he should be and does have a lot of contested catches. But when you like go to look at what happened at USC, so much of it was on the quarterback and the offense. Like they kind of had to have some of those contested catches for him. They threw a lot of back shoulder fades um, because that's kind of what that offense, that's all really the offense was able to do. He, I think he led um, college football in uh, back shoulder fades last year. But then you look at a bunch of other plays that are on the field and uh, Drake London will have like a couple steps behind a defensive back and the pass will just be underthrown. And so he has to adjust back to it. And he's a really, he has really good body control. So he's able to make those catches and then they turn into contested catches, but it's not by Drake London's doing. So I think that's uh, really been overstated throughout this process. And I think it's really underrated uh, what London can do as a wide receiver. And I think once he gets to the NFL, uh, there's going to be a lot more that he can do. And I think we'll, we'll see him running a lot more wide open than he was able to do at USC. Yeah, Drake London is an interesting name um, because there's very just strong opinions one way or another on him as a prospect, it feels like. And Peter King stuck him at number eight to the Falcons, which was the first wide receiver off of the board, which started a wide receiver run in his mock draft that came out earlier today. And other sharp guys that I speak with have been betting uh, Drake London over his draft position of ten and a half projecting that he'll go later than that. Um, his average draft position via grinding the mocks has been around 16 and a half. So it's one of the interesting hot button players in this draft where the draft prop has been very different from where he's been going in the average mocks. Most of the draft props are more closely aligned with the EDP from grinding the mocks. But for Drake London, that really has not uh, been the case. And Peter King thinks he's going to go a lot earlier than I think what some other people are expecting. I'll go over to you, Ryan. What's a player that you have been hearing a lot about that you have a differing opinion over and you want to get it off your chest? Well, I'll talk about the guy who may end up hearing his name called first on Thursday. It's Trevon Walker. Um, I certainly understand why there's an interest in his ceiling. Like the measurables and the testing numbers are enticing. Um, And I also think he's a relatively safe prospect because the versatility he showed at Georgia is definitely valuable. Um, If he were to land with a defensive coordinator who likes to get creative using multiple fronts, he's going to be really uh, valuable, you know, moving him around on the defensive line in those different roles. But to take a player in the top three to five picks, if for me, if I were the GM, I need the traits, but I also need the proven production and his lack of ability um, to wreck plays on his own off the edge as a pass rusher really jumps out as a big red flag to me. Uh, just to throw a stat out there, he generated a 9.1% pressure rate when he was lined up on the edge. Now, people downplay his lack of statistics because he did kick inside on passing downs at a fairly high rate. About 40% of the time, he was lined up on the interior on passing downs. But If we remove those, again, it's 9.1% pressure rate when he's lined up on the edge, when his role is to get into the backfield and create pressure. And Kayvon Thibodeau's at 19%. Aiden Hutchinson's at 17%. And so I just don't, as much as the traits are enticing, I just can't, uh, I can't justify taking a player up there that high that doesn't have the traits plus the production. Later in the first round, I'd be on board with it, but where he's being discussed, uh, that makes me nervous. 
Yeah, and for those of you that aren't uh, subscribed to the Ringer Gambling Show, uh, we discussed this on there last week. But if you look at another couple of statistics, these are via Austin Gale of PFF. You look at Kayvon Thibodeau and Aiden Hutchinson. Both are at 25% of their career pressures were unblocked or cleanup. And the NFL average was 36% over the last three years. So these guys aren't getting as many free, cheap pressures. Uh, Trayvon Walker was up at 49%. Basically, flip a coin, half of his pressures came when they were unblocked or clean up. And then your career pass rush win rates on third and four or more, another staff from Austin. Uh, Trayvon Walker was down at 11%. Once again, worst of the top pass rushers in this class, whereas Thibodeau and Hutchinson were at 25 and 24% respectively. So along with that statistic you just quoted, really different production rates from these three key players that are, be talking, that are being talked about as the top three edges in this class. I saw DJ tweet out about the 10-yard splits on the 40-yard time was identical for Hutchinson and Walker, where Walker obviously has the massive edge is in arm length and wingspan, where he's a 95 percentile athlete, whereas Hutchinson is 8% on arm length and 15% on edge. So this is basically what it's going to come down to, uh, whether Trent Balky really cares about that arm length specifically, or he's going for something else, and whether the owner there is able to win out uh, in terms of that discussion. I want to ask a question of you guys next. I'll start with you, Rich. Of the players that are generally being mocked in the first round, which player scares you the most if your team were to draft that particular prospect due to a negative attribute linked to him? Well, I mean, as you could tell by the first few answers I had, I mean, the, this quarterback class is, is definitely lacking on the objective front. So, any team that really takes, you know, any quarterback, even Malik Willis included, but any non-Malik Willis quarterback definitely scares me more than anybody else. This class gets comped to the 2013 class a lot, but I actually show objectively in all of my quarterback modeling, it actually compares in, uh, more negatively to like the 20, 2007 quarterback class when Jamarcus Russell went first and then Brady Quinn was the only other first-round quarterback at pick 22. And then it was like Kevin Kolb and John Beck and Drew Stanton in the second round. That's how bad this class looks on paper uh, in terms of projectability uh, you know, from a betting stance. So now the one good thing that this class does have going for it is that the difference in the NFL between 2013 and 2007 is night and day. The NFL is able to get a lot more just baseline production out of bad quarterback play than the way the game was played, uh, you know, even back in 2013. So I do think that we still will see one of these guys eventually probably hit and be a starter. But do I want my team making that bet, especially with premium capital, especially even if I'm leaving a team like the Saints that has two, you know, first round picks uh, and maybe needs a long term quarterback? I mean, I think that that would just scare the life out of me, uh, especially when this class does have really strong front end, you know, talent in terms of like edge defensive back and wide receiver. Yeah. One of the interesting tricks about this draft class is obviously it's getting talked about that next year's class is substantially better. And of course you get two premier blue chip quarterbacks in that class. Maybe some of the other guys in the class will uh, present themselves during the season as, as worthy of being drafted at number three or number four uh, closer up. But it's just, I went back and looked at what record would it take for you to be guaranteed to get the number two pick, right? And we're talking about next year's class being more talented. So if you want to get that number two pick next year, 
you can't even win four games. There's 17 games that you're playing this season. You, you can only win three games. To guarantee yourself a top two pick over the last, I think, three or four drafts, you have only been able to win three or fewer games. So you have to be really terrible next upcoming year. So I get the fact that you want to sort of punt and put yourself in contention for one of those picks next year. And I do agree. You don't want to reach on any first round quarterback that stinks. I totally agree with all of your sentiments, Rich. I just had that little comment to make about people that just seem to be spouting off all, well, next year's class is much better. Put yourself in position to, to do that and get one of those talents. It's like, you're going to have to be horrific next season to be in the top two, to get one of those picks. Otherwise you're going to have to mortgage like your entire draft class to be able to move up. Not I'm obviously being a little bit exaggerated there, but you're going to have to give up so much to move up to one of those top two picks to get one of those guys next year. Ryan, how about you? Which player fits this question for you? Yeah, I'll go a little bit off the board, not necessarily to a player. I don't, I've been, I hate, but just to, uh, bring up a new name because I certainly agree with Rich. I don't like this quarterback class. I mean, I, I agree with everything he said. Jordan Davis would be another one. I'm already touched on that a little bit, but I'll bring up Trent McDuffie as another player that I have some concerns on. Obviously, he's widely expected to be the third cornerback off the board, almost certainly within the top 15 picks, probably somewhere in that like 12 to 15, 16 range. Um, and I think one of the reasons he's going that high is teams have raved about him through the interview process, and they feel really comfortable with his football intelligence, his ability to come in um, and pick up their system quickly and play right away. So I have to acknowledge that that seems to be a strength, and it probably sets a relatively safe floor for him. Um, but I have concerns about him like reaching a really high level, and it mostly has to do with his lack of size and his lack of ball production, his lack of ball skills. Um so Sports Info Solutions has a stat um, route-adjusted ball hawk rate, which is basically like accounting for each different types of route. How often are you making a play on the ball? Because obviously, you know, if you're lined up in coverage and they throw a screen route, you're not expected to make a play on the ball in that situation. You're going to a very small percentage of the time. But if you're in coverage against a go route, you've got a pretty decent chance of getting there and making a play on the ball, almost just as much as the receiver does. So accounting for those adjustments... I'll go through the cornerbacks who went in last year's round first and their adju route-adjusted ball hawk rate. So J.C. Horn was plus 63% in his final season in college. Patrick Sertan, plus 59%. Caleb Farley, plus 120%. Greg Newsom, plus 59%. Eric Stokes, plus 64%. So these are the, that's the type of range you're looking at for like the elite cornerbacks, the guys that are kind of locked in in that first-round range. Trent McDuffie, 1%. So basically, he's giving you just average production, which I would argue is actually a little bit below average because Washington plays such a high rate of zone coverage, which we know you know gives you more opportunities to make plays on the ball. And it's a big red flag for me because it's easy to understand why that might be the case because he's five foot ten with twenty nine inch arms. So he's a smaller guy that you would already worry about his ball, his ability to get his hands on the ball. And now we've seen him in college, despite playing in a favorable scheme that should allow for those types of plays, he wasn't doing it at a very high rate. So th th that's just a little bit of a red flag. Like I said, his floor is probably pretty safe, but I don't necessarily know that he's going to play up to the to the level that you would expect where he's going to be drafted. Yeah, we definitely got uh, some under Trent McDuffie at 17 and a half. That's now down to 16 and a half. Um, I don't like hearing the comments that you're making there, but we will be talking about McDuffie again in a couple of uh, questions in the future. 
that I think are going to make me feel a little bit better uh, from that respect. Let's go to another question here. And that is Ryan and Brendan This is for you. I'll start with you, Brendan, which pick made in the top 10 would cause the most chaos and screw up the rest of your board in that range. Is there a specific player going to a specific spot? As we've discussed before this year's top 10 top of the draft class is so much less predictable than previous years because we don't have that QB going one or two or three. And so we're running into trouble of if a guy gets drafted, what is the cascading effect down the road? So what's that pick for you that would cause the most chaos in your particular mock draft that you've been crafting that you're going to be submitting on Wednesday night? Yeah, this is one I don't necessarily think is going to happen, but since it's fresh in the news today, I thought I would mention it, but um, for me, it would be Aquanu going number one to Jacksonville. Um, uh, Daniel Jeremiah today said that the Jags are indeed having an internal debate between um, who to pick at number one, but it's not between Hutchinson and, and Walker, as we all thought. It's actually between Walker, uh, who Bulky wants, and Aquanu, who the new head coach, Doug Peterson, wants. Um, so, yeah, if, if uh, Peterson gets his way and Aquanu goes one, I, I'm definitely not going to have that. Um, unless they leak that, I suppose, by Wednesday night. Um, and then that could just start that ripple effect that you just alluded to on on tackles. We could see the top. I mean, there's definitely a, a top three consensus tackles, and I, I think they're all going to go in the top ten. I, I'm going to have them in the top nine most likely. Um, but if that happens at one, I could see them going um, in the top six for sure, maybe even four or five. Okay, Ryan, same question for you. For me, it's the possibility of a quarterback going into the top 10 because I'm not going to predict that. And I think if it happens, it would set off a chain reaction that kind of screws up the whole rest of the first round. I'm not too worried about getting a pick wrong in the first like seven or so because I think we kind of know who those seven players are going to be. It's just a little bit of like, you know, how exactly are they going to line up? We're not going to get all seven right, most likely. Very few of us are going to get all seven. But if you miss one, it probably is just like, you know, one or two others get flipped around. But you know, let me if, interrupt you. And why don't you rattle off for the listeners here? What are those top seven that you think most people are going to have in some order? Just you don't have to list them in the order you're going to put them for your mock. But what do you think those seven players are? Yeah, so. I guess I'll give eight names that I think are going to land in those top seven spots. It'd be Hutchinson, Thibodeau, uh, Jermaine Johnson, Trevon Walker as the edge players, Evan Neal, Ikiakuanu, Charles Cross as the uh, offensive lineman, and then Ahmad Gardner. And then I guess you could add Derek Singley if you wanted to throw a ninth name in there. So that's nine names, and those nine names are almost certainly going to make up the first seven picks. So like I said, if you get one of those wrong – it probably doesn't set off a huge chain reaction that affects your picks that you've made like 15 through 32. But if a quarterback goes, like if the Falcons surprise us and take a quarterback or the Seahawks could do the same thing, that potentially sets off a big chain reaction because that means one of these other players I just mentioned, now they're dropping to 10, 11, 12, something like that. And the other guys are going to drop. You know, like, let's say it leads to Stingley falling a little bit, and now he's on the board for the Vikings at 12. Well, then that leads to Trent McDuffie falling a little bit. Now he's on the board for the Eagles. And so you, you see what I'm saying? That would set off a chain reaction that could lead to um, less accurate mock drafts for us. Right, no doubt about it. And Jermaine Johnson is an interesting name. We'll talk about him in a little bit because, 
you know, Peter King put him at 23 to the Cardinals today, which is one of the lowest I've seen him being placed. And then there's news and rumors coming out that the Jets might want him at number four. So we'll talk about that momentarily because I do think that that's an interesting uh, subject to hit on. Now I want to go in a more uh, positive direction here. Um, first, before we do that, though, I want to just ask you the simple question. What specific pick for you is the most difficult to assess, causes you the most sleepless nights as you're trying to reproduce a really accurate mock draft heading in? Uh, Brendan, what about you? I mean, this year for me, it, it actually is number one. I, I don't think I've ever gotten the first overall pick wrong since I, I started getting tracked by Huddle Report. And what are we, we're 72 hours away from the draft. And I can't say with confidence that I know for sure who the Jags are taking at this point. I, I mean, I do remember recently in the Baker Mayfield year there, uh, where I wasn't sure exactly who the first pick was going to be, but I did at least know that it was going to be a quarterback so I could narrow it down. Um, and then with about 24 to 48 hours left before the draft, I think reports started to come out um, from Schefter, I believe, um, that started to, to suggest that Baker was going to be the pick. So I, I'm hoping that that does happen again and the Jags do leak out um, by Wednesday night who they are going to take because as of right now, I'm, I'm definitely leaning one way, but I mean, I'd, I'd like to be 100% confident going into to Thursday. Okay, and Ryan, who is that for you? For me, it's the Jets at number four because I think that that is one of the earlier picks that has a little bit of a chain reaction um, because it's very possible they take a player that the Giants want and then that affects both of the Giants picks at five and seven and obviously it also affects the Jets pick at ten. So that's one pick that could potentially have an impact on four picks all within the top ten. Okay, so now this is where I want to get a little bit feeling better about myself uh, some of the best that I've placed and also let's get a little bit more positivity going here. What pick on the board are you the most confident in that you feel like the single best player to team connection that you've created, that you've read about, that you've assessed, that you just feel really good about? Um, I'll start with you, Brennan. Who is that player and what team is he going to in this draft that you think you would be shocked if it didn't happen? Well, maybe not. I'm not as confident um, as I was 10 minutes ago before Ryan started talking about Trent McDuffie, but um, <laughs> I, I do have Trent McDuffie to the Vikings as um, one I'm really confident in. And the reason why is because uh, the new GM of the Vikings came over from um, one of the most analytically, dri uh, analytically driven front offices, uh, which is the Browns. So um, we, we can only assume he's going to follow some of the same parameters that the Browns typically do with their early draft picks. Um, and thanks to our former colleague, Cleve T.A., uh, he points out that they typically look for a prospect um, that's at a premium position. He's under 22 years old. He has a relative athletic score of eight or higher and has a high PFF grade. So um, McDuffie checks all those boxes. Um, and quarter cornerback is a big need for Minnesota and, and the top two in front of him, Stingley and Gardner um, aren't going to be there. So if they want one of the top three corners, McDuffie checks a lot of boxes for them. So I think he'd be the pick. Okay. I certainly wouldn't argue with that. And there's a lot of different ways that that prop, we, we took a little bit of the McDuffie uh, under, and we also took a little bit of Minnesota to draft the DB with their first pick. So that would knock both those uh, into the winning category uh, for us to keep those tickets 
in our pocket. Ryan, same question to you. What's that player that you feel the most confident in? Well, McDuffie would be my answer also for all the same reasons Brendan just mentioned. But to bring up another name, I really like Traylon Burks to Dallas. Um, there's certainly other players in the conversation. It's it's conceivable they could go offensive line, but I think if Burks is there, he's just too much. He's just too perfect of a fit for them uh, to step in and do a lot of the same things that Amari Cooper did. He's so dangerous from the slot. He, he's such a, a great playmaker after the catch. The way he turns into a running back with the ball in his hands, I think that'd be a really easy pick for Dallas to make if he's available. It's it's fascinating as we're talking about Burks and as we're talking about the Cowboys and their selection at twenty four. The, the number of teams that are right in that range are the Packers, the Cardinals, and the Cowboys that all could use a wide receiver. And you feel like a team like the Chiefs or another team that wanted a wide receiver, their prime position to go to, to move to is probably not going to be with the Packers who they because they want a wide receiver. It would be with the Patriots right there at 21. Trading up, Steelers probably don't want to trade down. You could envision maybe you could convince the, the Eagles or the Saints. I don't see the Chargers at 17. So I think it's the Eagles at 18, the Saints at 19, or the Patriots at 21. If you want a wide receiver in the first round after the first wave went and you need to move up and there's still a wide receiver that you really like there, if you don't get them before the Packers at 22, the Cardinals at 23, the Cowboys at 24, you know, you're, you're, in, you're in trouble. So that would be the prime spot um, to move to, in my opinion. Um, all right. We're going to go back to Peter King's mock draft because he's got a big audience. We know big audience tend to move the marketplace. We saw what happened when he mocked uh, Trayvon Walker to go number one overall. Um, But just in general, uh, Dan, I'll throw it to you. What surprised you the most from reading Peter King's mock draft today? Uh, He had David Ojabo going to the Buccaneers which I kind of feel like the Buccaneers are the exact opposite type of team that would be trying to get someone at a potentially even a discount as Ojabo would be at, at that place, if depending on how you believe what he is as a prospect. But the guy coming off an Achilles tear is not someone who I would peg uh, a team with Tom Brady uh, and a team like trying to win a Super Bowl right now, uh, again, with a very, you know, expensive and, and veteran roster. Um, so to me, that just uh, didn't make a whole lot of sense. I feel like uh, trying to like get someone who's probably going to redshirt uh, a year is not really going to be uh, a guy that Tampa Bay is going to be trying to get for 2022. Yeah, Tampa Bay is in a really interesting situation. We're going to talk about some of the team needs and roster evaluation with you guys, you and Rich momentarily, but this is a team Tom Brady was giving them a really cheap cap hit in, in, in the past while he was there in Tampa. That goes up significantly this year. And a lot of those guys that they signed to, quote, unquote, keep the team together, uh, keep the team together heading into 2021 after they won the Super Bowl in the 2020 season, um, you know, that, that year of trying to keep these guys together, all 22 are returning, that, that's come and gone. Right. And so now a lot of these guys are either free agents or their cap hits have increased. And so it's very difficult for them to try to uh, assemble a roster. And so to sign a player like that who is going to miss some time at the beginning of the season to fill a void where you've got some guys that are leaving via free agency, it does it does seem a little bit uh, peculiar. I'll go to you, Brendan. Which player from Peter King's mock draft surprised you the most? Mine was uh, Jermaine Johnson falling to 23. Um, I mean, reports of the Jets seriously considering him uh, at four 
Um, you know, we can even put those aside. But, you know, the really the biggest knock I hear on Johnson is his age, and that's not really a concern for for every team. His over under is nine and a half, and there's just way too many reports out there that teams love him for him to drop all the way to twenty three on draft night. Yeah, so we might as well get into that. I'll, I'll let you talk about Jermaine Johnson real quick, Brian, because I know you wanted to mention him as well as another player, and then I'll share a couple of these reports. Yeah, Johnson's definitely one for me too. Just, you know, there's a premium on edge rushers and there seems to be a pretty clear-cut top four, maybe top five if you include George Karloftis in there. Uh, so I think these guys are going to go early and that leads me to the other one that I wanted to bring up, which is Karloftis. And King has him falling out of the first round. Um, I do think it's pretty clear that he's the fifth of that of those top five edge rushers. So he's, not, he's probably not going to go in the top 10 to 12 picks. But once those four off the board there's a bit of a drop-off so I think Karloftis has to go somewhere in there and the one other thing I wanted to bring up about him he's really young he just turned 21 this past week and this is a very old draft class we've mentioned a couple others Brendan just mentioned how Jermaine Johnson is older but because of the extra year of eligibility um, that kind of almost exponentially increased the age of this draft class because you had a lot of players stay in school and now they're turning pro at the age of 23 24 but those guys who stayed in school, they also kept younger players on the bench at their schools. So there were fewer young players getting playing time to then become to then want to turn pro with enough of a body of work to turn pro. Um, so I think we're going to see, especially kind of in the late first round and throughout day two, we're going to see some quote unquote reaches maybe for a lot of these younger prospects. And some of these older guys, I think on day three is probably where we see like a lot of 23, 24-year-olds come off the board where teams um, maybe, maybe just don't see quite as much upside with them. And there'll be sort of a premium on the younger guys early. Yeah, I mentioned Jermaine Johnson earlier in this uh, spaces where we were talking about is some guys are betting his over really strongly. They don't think he's going in that top 10 range. And then Peter King doesn't even – what does he have? Has him at twenty three to the Cardinals, so not even close to his player prop of nine and a half. His expected draft position per grinding the mocks at eleven point nine right now. So King doesn't have him anywhere close to that. But then you have uh, Jordan Renan of uh, New York Giants media is talking about a tweet today. A player who will go higher on Thursday than most seem to expect is FSU edge rusher Jermaine Johnson. Some I spoke with believe he will ultimately be the best pass rusher in this draft. Seems to be a top 10 lock, maybe even sneaks into the top five. And Dane Brugler, Connor Hughes, quote tweeted and said, watch for the Jets at pick four, so not pick 10, sticking under the nine and a half draft prop at pick four. And then Dane Brugler quote tweeted Connor and said, for what it's worth, several around the NFL who I trust believe Jermaine Johnson has a better chance to go number four to the Jets than Thibodeau. Now, Thibodeau's steam to the under was very strong this afternoon. His draft prop at under four and a half got bet tremendously. And in some spots, it's even down to three and a half. I've seen out West a little bit. Um, So definitely uh, one of the more intriguing things to watch over the course of the rest of this week is this Jets connection to Jermaine Johnson and, and how that impacts uh, somebody like Thibodeau if he doesn't go one or two and you have the Houston Texans not taking an edge at three, does Thibodeau 
go four or does he not? And does Jermaine go there? So that's interesting. Now I want to go back to where we started, uh, which is how you evaluate these players. You can watch their tape and then you can try to figure out where they might go based upon what a team's needs are with position groups. They might need more than others. And as I mentioned at the top, Dan and Rich spent tons and tons of time picking through the current rosters of all of these teams and which players moved on in the off season. So I want to start with you, Rich in researching all 32 rosters and all the team needs for all those rosters, which team surprised you the most with how much they were lacking at a particular position? Well, well, every team needs wide receivers and offensive linemen. That'll never go away. But uh, the one team that we did that I just came feeling out just really let down by, and especially with the position they were placed in the past couple of years, was the, the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, just to see where they are after having a quarterback on a rookie contract. Uh, you know, since they drafted Kyler Murray with the first overall pick in 2019, they've taken, you know, two linebackers since in the first round. Uh, since they've even drafted Kyler, the the most premier draft capital they spent at a skill position is, is are on Rondell Moore and Andy Isabella. And now this team now has needs all over the place while they are already going to be in this, you know, kind of, you know, Stonewall now with having to pay Kyler Murray. I mean, James Conner has never played a full season in the NFL. Only Conner and, you know, Benjamin are the running backs signed beyond the season. DeAndre Hopkins now will be 30 years old this June. He's coming off of by far his worst season since 2016. So you say, all right, was he just limited because of the injuries he had? Or is this the start of the slide through the remainder of his apex? I mean, he's already a guy that doesn't rely on, you know, winning necessarily with like separation. He's a guy that might not age greatly. Uh, and then you you know, outside of Hopkins, Rondell Moore is the only wide receiver on this roster signed past this season. Uh, Zach Ertz is a solid and dependable player, but he's not an explosive player. He'll also be 32 years old. He's more of a high floor asset in an offense. And the offensive line is littered with a ton of question marks. Only Rodney Hudson and Josh Jones are the only offensive linemen on this entire roster signed beyond this season. Uh, I mean, this is a team that's uh, starving for a vertical playmaker. We know they love Jamison Williams, but they're probably not going to be able to get him now at this point. Uh, this the whole Cardinals, uh, you know, the way this has played out the last couple of years, the Cardinals uh, really feels like a really missed opportunity. No doubt about it. Their season win total right now sits at nine games. So um, it's going to be fascinating. Their division obviously gets a little bit easier with the absence of Russell Wilson. But um, this, this is a team that really is, has let people down a little bit here with what some of the hopes were. Dan, same question to you. Uh, which team surprised you the most with how lacking they were at a particular position? Um, so this is pretty easy to kind of gloss over if you're not really closely paying attention to uh, the actual team rosters at this point in the season. But the Giants literally have two safeties. Like, two. Um, so <laughs> that's that's going to be something that, like, I'm not sure that really puts them in, like, Kyle Hamilton at one of their first two picks, but um, that is uh, a number that is going to have to increase, especially in a Wink Martindale defense now that um, is going to be very defensive back heavy. That is a defense that's going to want to play a lot of dime. You figure in as soon within like two days, James Bradbury might not be on that team anymore either. So that takes out uh, a corner. Um, so they had some uh, backup corners who were playing safety um, at the, their uh, their voluntary workouts um, last week. 
so I mean, Xavier McKinney, Julian Love are, are good players. That's a it's a fun safety tandem. Uh, having two defensive, uh, having two safeties on the roster, uh, not something that is going to be uh, going forward um, as they go into the draft. So whether that's you know an early day two, which might be a sweet spot for some of these safeties, or um, you know sometime sometime day two, day three, this is probably going to be a, a place where the Giants have to uh, add a bunch of defensive backs here, just uh, kind of all over the secondary. And with that, we need to press the button to execute the Dave Gettleman rant from me. And I just got to say this. the This team has a quarterback on a rookie deal, and yet they have the least cap space of any team in the NFL. They're not expected to have a winning season. They haven't had a winning season. They've been terrible under Dave Gettleman. He did nothing with the team when they had a quarterback on a rookie deal. Now he's leaving the his successor in a worse position than he inherited in a worse position that he had at any point in time during his span. This is the same exact guy who has been able to use the most draft capital of any team since 2018 in the first round. And the picks that he's made in the first round have been abject disasters, but for one player and they've had, I think seven, uh, you can forget that also Dave Gettleman is the same exact guy who drafted a running back in the top 10 in 2017, a few months later was fired by the Carolina Panthers and then drafted a running back number two overall in 2018. So for two straight drafts, he's the only GM in NFL history, I believe since like, well, back in like the 60s or 70s when running backs were more at a premium. But no running back, no GM in modern NFL history has drafted running backs in two straight top 10s. Obviously, he was with different teams. He was pathetic. And another thing I want to just share out there is so many people, I mean, everybody, we're, we're all sort of in the media. I don't really try to view us much as in the media. I just view us, we're more popular now, but we're still the same guys that have takes and do research and post them on Twitter and write them in articles and that type of thing. But people like us, we, we say negative things about Dave Gettleman and the Giants or you know, I say things negative about the Jacksonville Jaguars and their ownership and how they haven't been able to win. And you've got those fan bases that then attack you for saying those negative things. Meanwhile, those same exact people who are saying things about you on Twitter, they're having the same discussions privately. Like, damn it, man, the fuck Dave Gettleman screwing up a roster. Dave Gettleman sucks. But then as soon as somebody from the outside says it, oh, we can't have that. And it's funny, all we want to see is the Giants do better. We want to see the Jaguars stop being pathetic. We want them to get better. We're all after the same thing. We'd like to see your team get better. We're just honest about our assessment and sharing that. Uh, So don't take it that we hate your team. We just want them to be better, and we're calling out things as we see them. Um, That being said, let's transition back, Rich, off of that rant. What team do you see that that is a need for a particular team that's absolute must need but does it really mesh well with a pick you're seeing commonly mocked to that team in the first round? Well, well, I don't think that this is a, a mock drafters, you know, issue. Uh, I don't think the mockers are wrong. But if this is, if this was to play out in real life, I think it would be a reach, and that's just piggybacking off of all the thoughts I've had in this quarterback class. Maybe the Titans taking a quarterback at pick 26. Uh, I get like the allure of maybe they they need insurance for Ryan Tannehill. 
who has two years left on his deal would only be, I guess only in air quotes, would only be $19 million of dead cap money next year. And the backup quarterback room is arguably one of the worst in the NFL with just Kevin Hogan and Logan Woodside. But this is not the kind of draft, you know, paired with their immediate needs to kind Just the number one seed in the AFC last year. They play in a division where you can get fat again. I mean, the AFC North winner and the AFC West winner probably is not going to be the number one seed in the AFC. Those teams are going to beat up each other too much for them teams to get to 13-plus wins. Uh, You look at A.J. Green, he's in the final year of his rookie deal with no fifth-year option available because he was a second-round pick. Robert Woods is 30 years old coming off of an ACL. We saw the depth that the Titans have at wide receiver be exposed last year. 31% of Ryan Tannehill's dropbacks came without A.J. Brown and Julio Jones on the field, and he averages 5.5 yards per attempt on those plays as opposed to 8.2 yards per attempt with both in the lineup this team just doesn't have a playmaker at tight end they've got they only added catch and fall tight end austin hooper the offensive line is is a huge question mark i mean they were at the bottom third of the league in almost every metric last year um they have two good offensive linemen and ben jones and taylor lawan but taylor lawan hasn't played a full season since 2017 uh he also has has really no dead cap money left after this year uh, right guard Nate Davis in the final season of his contract. He was awful last year. Uh, they don't know what they really have in left guard and Aaron Brewer. He was bad last year. They took Daniel Radinson the second round last year at right tackle. He only played 124 snaps as a rookie, and they were really sketchy. He had a 14% pressure rate. They've already come out and said that they don't know what position he's even going to play this year. I mean, this team has a, a ton of needs on a team that's already contending. Um, I know they've already lit their last two first-round picks seemingly on fire in Isaiah Wilson and Caleb Fairley, so maybe they just feel like, hell, we'll do it again a third year in a row. But uh, taking a quarterback at pick 26 seems like a colossal mistake again for them. <laughs> I can't help but laugh at the catch-and-fall tight end of Austin Hooper. I, I like that description very much. Uh, Dan, how about you? Same question. Yeah, uh, I don't know why we're not potentially – putting a wide receiver on the Ravens. Uh, I mean, I, I get that they took one in the first round last year and we're, we're all on team Rashad Bateman here. Um, we're hoping uh, there's going to be a, a nice little year two weep here. But uh, when you look at the rest of what they have on offense, and I think when like you look at what's currently getting mocks in them, you look at uh, grinding the mocks, it's, it's edge. Uh, there's some offensive tackles, but defensive tackle corner, like it's all going to the defense and, and that defense was like, 24th in EPA per play last year but I think we have to remember how injured that defense was so they're going to get a lot of healthy bodies back and that defense is just going to be better by being healthy and and they have a lot of top tier talent uh, on that defense so I mean like aesthetically sure put Jordan Davis next to uh, Calais Campbell and that's something I will very willingly watch uh, on Sundays but I think when you look at like actual effectiveness like a first round wide receiver kind of should be on the board here like what does this baltimore offense look like if like you give them maybe like uh, maybe garrett wilson doesn't uh you know slide to where they are in the middle of the first round but i think that's something that could potentially you know, really make them better you look at marquise brown he's going to have his 
fifth year option uh, coming up. The Ravens have to decide whether they want to uh, pick that up or uh, extend him. And he's kind of like one of those players that's going to be, you know, kind of on that middle ground of whether it's really worth it or not, especially when you see some of these receiver contracts um, that have been, you know, going over the, the past couple weeks. Um, so that's going to be a, a long-term decision they need to make. And so after that, you have Rashad Bateman, who again, we all hope uh, is doing great team Rashad Bateman. Um, Devin DuVernay, like I like him a lot, but I don't think you really want him as, you know, a, a long-term number three. Um, and then after that, like, you know, Tylen Wallace is, is a guy who's still, you know, with 20, 21 fourth round pick. Um, it's just like, it's not a very deep group at, at receiver. And maybe you can get that in the second round or so, but um, I, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if we do see them go receiver for the second year in a row in the first round. Well, it certainly is a position that they could enhance more by taking a guy up here. Uh, but I certainly have not seen very many players uh, and many drafters mocking a wide receiver to them either. Uh, let's We're going to hit one or two more quick questions, and I'm going to go over some of the draft props that you guys like the most that you've bet, uh, some of the draft props that are still out there that you like the most. Um, and then we're going to take some of your guys' questions. So, just a note, we're going to be getting to all of these things momentarily, but just a couple quick questions. First one goes to Ryan and Brendan. Um, last year, you know, thanks to you guys and some of your information, this became widely known. Um, Aziz Ojolari's draft prop, we, you know, we were on his overs. He didn't get picked until 50 overall. Uh, is there a player this year that you, late in the game, maybe are hearing injury concerns about that could cause him to drop that we may want to have on our radar? I'll go ahead and start with you, Brendan. Yeah, Kenyon Green, um, Daniel Jeremiah said uh, somewhat in passing on their show last night on their Mocking the Draft show that he has a knee issue that's been flagged that could cause him to fall to the second round. Um, On the show, nobody really pressed him for more info on it, and there doesn't seem to be much public information out there to say for sure exactly what it is. Um, But he did say that he has been flagged for – a, a knee issue so not sure yet how big of a deal it is but just thought i'd mention it because that was the first I, i've heard of it was last night so right now he is at 27 and a half minus 115 both ways for his draft position ryan player for you or if you have any other information on can you green that you can share yeah i think the player most likely to fall out for injury reasons is probably andrew booth the cornerback from clemson He's obviously been in the first round of mock drafts throughout most of the offseason, and it could still happen for the reasons I mentioned earlier if we see a run on uh, cornerbacks and the team feels like he's just worth the gamble because it addresses a need and there's maybe a drop-off after that. Um, But he had hernia surgery recently, and he's had just kind of a long list of injuries throughout his career. Nothing huge. There was one knee injury that led to a surgery and a bunch of other you know, muscle tears and whatnot. But when stuff like that starts to add up, even if it's not like a huge glaring concern, that is obviously a red flag for teams. But then when you add that to a very recent surgery, that's sort of like two big check marks against you. And so I think, although he probably isn't being fully removed from a lot of boards, I think it's enough of a red flag that uh, teams are going to be cautious about over investing with a first round pick. Okay, interesting. Yep, that's a, that's definitely a player. His ju- uh, position total is 29.5 now, juiced minus 175 to the over. If we got involved at 26.5 and 28.5, and if I'm not mistaken, hit it a couple of different times. Uh, that's now at 29.5 over, minus 175. Um, 
Dan has been writing up a ton of great analytical driven articles up on the website. He looked at safety versatility today. I tweeted that article out a few days ago. He wrote up about quarterback accuracy of this draft class and then also wide receiver production, looking at uh, the yards that those receivers are recording compared to the yardage that the quarterbacks on their team are recording when they're throwing it to other wide receivers on the team and what that means or should mean to us in this draft. So, Dan, I just wanted to open-ended question, throw out there, which of these studies stood out to you? What's one observation that really stood out to you that we could take and learn from um, as it relates to this 2022 class and kind of the way college or NFL is headed? Yeah, I'll, I'll probably bounce around a little bit, but just to stick with what I wrote today, uh, these these safeties are good, man, uh, and that's, that's fun. Um, so we can kind of debate actual positional value whether you know a single safety is going to be very highly valued and we'll probably see that with wherever Kyle Hamilton goes uh in the first round but uh he is one of these guys who can do a little bit of of everything which is good and you just you need that versatility right now so I was going through it there were we talk about like this this too high structure for a lot of these defenses and how that's kind of sweeping um, the league. And a lot of teams do go to a too high structure pre-snap. It's 17 teams uh, were in a too high uh, shell pre-snap uh, over 50% of the time last year. But so much of that is still rotating down after the snap. Um, and zero teams were in a too high coverage after the snap uh, more than 50% of the time. The highest rate was just uh, 45%. Uh, last year so there's still a lot of uh, rotating down for safety we're still seeing a lot of single high coverages Uh, cover one still the most prevalent uh, coverage uh, in the league Uh, cover three is right behind it so we are seeing some more you know two high looks uh, in coverage but it's still basically a single high coverage league when you actually get to what the coverages are actually being run and so you do need safeties who can start in that too high be able to rotate down be able to play kind of all of those roles and we do have a lot of safeties in this class who can do that you know we we have Hamilton who's able to do a little bit of everything and then you have a lot of guys who fit some of these boxes um you know Lewis Seen from Georgia is really kind of like that that more of a, a deep safety um and and he's really good at that position you have uh, like Jaquan Brisker uh, from Penn State is a guy who, while doing this, I really liked a, a lot more. He kind of just kind of seems like that a really versatile guy uh, who can play down in the box. And Ryan made a lot of like the the John Johnson role with the Rams. I kind of think you can plug him in right there. So I think like day two, we're going to see a, a lot of run on these safeties. Um, and then when you look at like these these wide receivers, it's really important, I think, and why I do this wide receiver study that I do is to kind of put them in context of their offense. So the the metric I do is taking uh, the wide receivers yards per target and then looking at um, what uh, the quarterback throws to in that offense when throwing to anyone else in that offense. So it, it kind of stabilizes, you know, some of these high powered offenses that have, you know, either a lot of good receivers or they're just throwing the ball all the time. So you can kind of see, you know, who is doing the most uh, with what they have. And you, you can look at a guy like um, a, uh, uh, Jahan Dotson from Penn State when he is uh, he only has like 8.3 yards per target that's not really impressive but when his quarterback was throwing to anyone else it was just 6.06 yards per attempt 
Um, and so that like 2.2 yard difference was one of the higher rates uh, in this class. So it kind of contextualizes uh, that. And, and he's a guy who comes out well. Jameson Williams in that Alabama offense was incredible, one of the highest um, scores in this thing. So it, it kind of on the high and low end, you can kind of see that. And then looking at the quarterbacks, um, you know, but as Rich kind of said, they're, they're not very good. Um, and no one even like really stands out, not just uh, in terms of, you know, where we've seen compared to other classes. No one really stands out in accuracy, uh, you know, among this class. Usually you kind of have like maybe even this like late round guy, like a Tyler Huntley um, a couple years ago was a guy who was like best in class in accuracy in like all three levels of the field. You don't even really have that guy here. Um, but I think when the, my big takeaway there is Malik Willis was one of the most accurate guys in the short area of the field. So I think you kind of talked about Kenny Pickett uh, in a way that like he has this like short area accuracy. Uh, Malik Willis was, was just as accurate. And I think he has uh, a little more upside when you're throwing, you know, more than 11 yards past the line of scrimmage. Um, so I think comparing them uh, there was was super interesting. And I think, um, you know, even when looking at that, you can kind of see why Malik Willis, maybe you want to take uh, the bet on him when the kind of the one thing Kenny Pickett is billed at doing well, uh, Malik Willis does just as good. Okay, excellent. So you guys can read all of those articles uh, up at Sharp Football Analysis. And as we're getting ready to discuss some of these draft props next, I do want to encourage you, as you see on your Twitter spaces here, all these guys that are listed as speakers have been contributing content and work at our site. Uh, you guys should be following them on Twitter. So every single one of these accounts up here that's a speaker, give these guys a follow because I can guarantee you between now and Thursday night and during the mock during the first round of the draft, you, you, these guys are going to be tweeting out good information for you. You're going to want to be keeping up to speed on things that they're sharing um, as well. And so let's start talking about some of the uh, different prop bets that you guys like. Let's go one prop at a time. We'll just kind of roll through uh, some of these things. I don't want to hear right now about props that you've already bet where the lines were great at one point in time. It doesn't help anybody right now. I will find out from you later what's the singular best prop that you love the most that's no longer available. But for the people that are listening we all want to make some bets that you can find on the board right now. So I'll go ahead and start with you, Ryan. Give me one prop that's available now that you really like. Yeah, I think my favorite still on the board is probably the over on the quarterbacks, Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett. We talked a, a little bit about this already. I believe Willis is still available at 10.5 and, and Pickett at 12.5. At least that's where it was a little bit earlier today. Um, I think the only way you end up losing either one of those bets is with a trade, which it it might happen, but there's probably not a reason for it to happen because, you know, we're not expecting any of those teams in that range to be taking a quarterback. So, like, if you are a team a little bit later who, who wants one of those guys, do you really need to go up that high? You probably don't. You know, if you're the Steelers and you want to jump the Saints, you don't need to go up to number 10 to make that happen, probably. So, I, I think both of those are going to be pretty safe bets. And th those lines have stuck pretty steady in that range. So, you probably have a little bit of time to get in on it so yeah and what's interesting is uh one of the spots out west started taking uh i don't see any other props from them except for individual player draft position props so you know the kenny pickett over 12 and a half except for they're at 16 and a half and they're also higher on um the malik willis i believe they're at 13 and a half on malik willis now so while all the spots 
out on the East Coast, all the, you know, the FanDuel's, the DraftKings, and these guys have been at 10.5 and, and 12.5 and for ages. These guys are very different. So I don't disagree if you want to get in on that market for the quarterbacks and go over their draft position. Um, you might as well, you know, get started on that if you if you missed it earlier, because um, if these books end up following one of these sharp books out in Vegas, uh, these props are going to shift. Uh, Brendan, how about you? What's one prop that you like a lot that's still out there? Yeah, just quickly to, to your point, um, I checked right before we started on DraftKings and the draft proposition for Kenny Pickett, it's actually been pulled. Um, so it's uh, it's not there anymore. I don't know if they're just going to recalibrate it like you just said or what's going on there. But the Malik Willis one is still there. So for all the reasons that Ryan just alluded to and, and Dan, um, his, his prop is still at 10.5. So I like the over with that. Okay, perfect. How about what, what one did you have circled? Uh, I also like uh, Bills to take uh, defensive back with their first pick at plus 150. Um, I know there's been a lot of connection with them drafting a running back, but um, I'm not not buying it. They had a lot of that same kind of talk and conjecture last year that they had uh, interest in, in adding a running back in the first round, and obviously it didn't happen. So um, I'm not buying it this year either. I think they have a bigger need at in the secondary, so I, I like that. Bills defensive back first pick plus one fifty. It looks like Pickett is still twelve and a half over minus forty eight up at FanDuel right now. So while he's gone off of DraftKings momentarily, if you saw that, then um, he's still up at FanDuel at minus forty eight to the over at twelve and a half. Uh, Dan, how about you? Uh, so to stick with uh, some of the safeties that I was just uh, writing about today. Um, um, I'd take all the Lewis scene uh, props right now. I talked about him from Georgia. He's the kind of guy who is the, you know, the, the prototypical deep safety um, in this class, but he's right now um, plus 120 to go in, in the first round, plus 275 to be um, the second safety off the board. And I think that's, that's probably a decent uh, place where, where he might go. Um, you know, personally, I probably think that should be Jaquan Brisker, but I could definitely see NFL teams wanting uh, Lewis Seen to be there. Uh, and plus uh, 105 is under of uh, 34 and a half. Um, so, you know, that's kind of in that, that top of the second round. I, I could see him pushed into the first round, which makes some of those um, uh, some of those props uh, make a lot of sense. And, uh, and being the, the second safety uh, probably uh, might be a, a better bet uh, than the 275 uh, would imply also. Yeah, I think one of the favorite ones that I've taken thus far, and I think people, you know, implied probability of higher odds just means that you have to exceed that probability. It doesn't mean it's a bad bet if you're laying minus 285. And to have more than one and a half first round safeties go at minus 285, we hit a 260, we hit a variety of different numbers. I think that just seems like a very strong prop in my opinion, and it's going to exceed that implied probability. I think um, even if you get Kyle Hamilton slipping a little bit, uh, just make sure that you know the rules at your book. But from what I've been told, Dax Hill, if you're betting at DraftKings or FanDuel, I have seen that that is going to be graded out as a safety. Uh, Seen is graded out as a safety, obviously. So uh, a lot of mocks I'm seeing, all three of those guys are going in the first round. Uh, you just need two of them to go. So somebody other than um, 
somebody other than Kyle Hamilton, you need one of these other two guys to go. And it seems like a pretty solid wager for that to happen. So piggybacking on what you said right there. Uh, Ryan, let's go back to you. Give me one more that you like. Yeah, one one that I like that I wish was still available that I would have gone back to again is uh, Jordan Davis. His over-under was originally at 13.5, and, and I took the over on that. And I loved that because that gave you – uh, the Ravens at 14 as a possible win. Unfortunately, that's one that keeps rising. And so now that you're on the wrong side of the Ravens, which I think is probably the earliest he comes off the board, I'm less interested in it. Although for reasons I discussed earlier, you know, concerns about him being able to stay on the field, it, it is realistic for him to slide, you know, 16, 17, maybe even into the early 20s. How about you, Brendan? Uh, another one that I like that you can still get is uh, Giants to take a offensive lineman with their first pick, minus 130, with the Panthers sitting right behind them with such a big need at offensive line. As we discussed, I don't think they're taking a, a quarterback there at six. So if they do stay put, um, I think the Giants would prefer to take their pick of, of the top three guys, whoever is there at five, um, than risk losing him to the Panthers at six. Okay. How about you, Ryan? There is another one that you and I both discussed. Um, I actually, thanks to you noticing it, mentioning it, um, was able to get down a little bit on this one. Uh, do you want to go ahead and share uh, the Tampa Bay to go defensive lineman and what you liked about that one? Yeah. I, do you have that in front of you, what the number was? Was it like plus 270 or something it was, like that? It was plus 270, exactly. I'll look up what the current number is right now. Yeah, I think when you were looking at the – the positions for the Bucks to take that—that was actually the third most likely one. So you were getting pretty big favorable odds there, and we know that they've done a lot of homework on some defensive tackles. They've visited with a few. I don't have the list in front of me, but uh, the su- suspects that you would expect them to take—the guys that are in the late first round, like uh, Travis Jones out of UConn, Devontae Wyatt from Georgia—they've um, done a lot of homework on those guys, and it feels probably the most glaring current need on their roster since Indomik and Sue. Um, is a, still a free agent, and uh, Steve McClendon also is a free agent. That's not a; it doesn't sound like a big deal, but McClendon does play a lot of nose tackle for them. It's a, which is like a pretty specific role within their defense that they would need to fill if he isn't brought back. Um, and someone like Travis Jones jumps out as a guy who could step in and play that nose tackle role that McClendon uh, has played for them, but also play a little bit of Sue's role as well. So I, I think it's just like a really obvious blend of a glaring need and multiple players who are very likely to be on the board there, uh, but there's probably some value in that uh, plus 270 number there. Yeah. And actually it was, we got plus, it was plus 270 at FanDuel. It's plus 275 at DraftKings right now as we speak. So uh, that's a good number. Brendan, any, another one that you have that you like that's still currently available? No, that was, that was all I had for what's still currently out there. Okay, so let me go ahead and throw it to um, Brendan. I'll ask you right now, what is one prop that you love the most? If it ever came back to this number, you'd definitely encourage somebody to grab it, but you loved it the most um, and it's no longer available. You wish you got more down on it. Well, I mean, the most obvious one is Trayvon Walker going number one. You know, when we started talking um, about the draft about a month ago, maybe a little bit more, um, when we were looking at when the props first came out, he was uh, 30 to one to be the, the number one pick. So 
yeah, I'd love to have a chance at that one again now that we're three days out from the draft. But, yeah, that one's long gone. He just finally went to become the betting favorite as of this morning. So, yeah, if I could still get 30 to 1, I would certainly take that today. Dan, what was it for you? What one did you like a lot? Uh, so when all of the receivers were running like a two four forty uh, at the combine, I took Jameson <laughs> Williams at plus seven fifty to be the first wide receiver off the board. Um, and if you look today, that is now down to plus one seventy five with an actual possibility of it happening. Um, so I uh, I would have liked to have a little more, even at uh, plus seven fifty. Um, I'd uh, always thought Jameson Williams was the the top wide receiver just in terms of what he can do. Um, now that uh, people seem to be feeling uh, a little better uh, about his health, it looks like uh, he might be going uh, quite high. So um, that was one I, I wish I, I could jump on again. All right. Well, we've got uh, some questions, I'm sure, from the listeners out there. So let's go ahead and run through a few of these before we depart. I'll get my uh, – my uh, skill set here to pick and get people up here. Uh, let's go ahead and get um, Pat. Let me add you as a speaker, Pat. What do you got for us tonight? What's your draft question? Go ahead and unmute. Hey guys, big fan. Um, my biggest question is with cornerbacks. Um, I'm a Bengals fan, but the prop I'm looking at is cornerbacks in the first round. Uh, so I see four and a half. So I was wondering what you guys thought about that. Four and a half. Uh, Ryan, do you have any take on that one? Yeah, I mean, if you can get four and a half, bet all you got on the under because there's not going to be five. Uh, you probably can't get that number. Three and a half might be out there, two and a half might be out there. I think different books have had each of those numbers. Um, I would certainly lean towards the under if you can get three and a half. Um, Three seems plausible, but I think really I'm only expecting two. I think, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to be. I think he was saying, Ryan, I think he was saying cornerbacks. Oh, corner, corner. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, let me take, let me look at a list real quick just to make sure I'm not forgetting somebody. Cornerbacks right now I'm seeing is uh, under four and a half is minus 50, over four and a half is plus 20. All right, so Gardner, Stingley, and McDuffie are going to go. Those are the three. I think I would probably lean towards over, um, although it's probably a stay away from me. But for the reason that I talked about a little bit earlier, there's a clear-cut top three, and they're probably going to be off the board within the top 12. So then – throughout a little bit over half of the first round, are we really only going to see one cornerback come off the board? I think that's unlikely just because it's a premium position that a lot of teams are going to feel the need to address. So I I would expect two to come off the board, but I I might just stay away from it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that question, Pat. I'm looking and uh, most of your guys mocks over the past uh, month or so have had four corners going and Kyler Gordon being the last one that went I do have some uh, Gordon to go in the top 32. Uh, so that's something that I have there, but have done nothing on over under uh, for that prop. Let's see. I'm trying to add somebody else here. Miller. What, what is your favorite prop uh, of the draft so far? 
Uh, my favorite one. Well, we just ran through a bunch of the different favorite ones from the guys. Uh, for me, one of the ones that I bet on earlier was over one and a half safeties to go in the first round. I really like that one. Um, let's see. And, and I still think it's bettable at the current numbers as well. Uh, we mentioned the booth over Andrew booth over. We took a little bit of that. That was another one um, that I really like as well. I'll be honest. We've, and, and there's a few others that I mentioned along the way that I like, I will be honest. We did more last year by this point in time than we've done thus far this year uh, in terms of going bigger on these things. Um, and we're getting down over the course of the next few days at a higher rate, but we have, I say we probably gotten about 40% of what we're totally going to get down on things. Um, I do think it's very important to be correct up at the top five, top 10. Um, and we haven't done that. So um, let's, let's keep rolling here. Um, we're going to see, I'll give Ozzy one more chance here. Uh, Ozzy, let's see if this works for you, buddy. Ozzy. Yeah. Sorry about those uh, technical issues beforehand. Um, <clears throat> there we go. What do you so got? My question us, is in regards to how the board's going to fall for both the giants and the Seahawks in the top 10. Um, looking at Joe Sheen, you know, he's uh, drafted a bunch of uh, defensive linemen uh, in his last few drafts, Gregory Russo, A.J. Epinesa, one other guy. Um, but cornerback seems to be a bigger need for the Giants, in my opinion, um, and kind of how it uh, relates to the Seahawks potentially taking maybe Jermaine Johnson or um, whatever offensive tackle slips to them. Um, so I'm just really wondering if, you know, the Giants would – go with Jermaine Johnson there at seven potentially, or if that's smoke. And then off of that, what, uh, what do you think the Seahawks would uh, be leaning towards at nine? I'll let uh, Dan hit the giants question here. And then Ryan, maybe you can tag team or Brendan on what you think the Seahawks might do after that. But Dan, go ahead. What do you think the giants might do here? Yeah, so in terms of the Giants, it's really interesting because, like you said, the Buffalo has gone heavy, especially in the past you know couple of years, and getting some of those you know first round head rushers really having that type of rotation. But that doesn't completely mesh with what Wink Martindale uh, really the way he structures right. uh, his defense. Like in, in that way, that's going to be uh, a lot of guys who like it, they're just going to blitz a ton. Uh, so you're going to have some just like athletic guys who don't necessarily need to be top end pass rushers or are going to be getting to the corner quarterback. And uh, that's going to put a lot of emphasis on the secondary and having some guys uh, who can hold up in coverage. So I would, I would expect um, the secondary to be uh, one of those two picks, probably seven. Cause like uh, we mentioned before, uh, likely offensive line at, at five to get in front of Carolina. Um, so I, I would much uh, I would definitely expect them to to go heavier uh, in the secondary and then maybe somewhere in day two like a Nick Benito or something is probably a guy who, who really meshes well with what they want to do um, as a pass rusher they don't necessarily need a guy who's going to be top 10 there in order to do what they want uh, for guys who are going to be able to rush the pass in that scheme before I go ahead and let uh, Brendan or Ryan chime in on the Seahawks at nine, I will say in one of our discussions that we had, I think it was either last night or earlier today, we were talking about what the Giants might do at five versus at seven. And it was really fascinating because there are scenarios where an offensive lineman is the number one overall offensive lineman is still on the board at five. If we have three edges in a corner that go in the top four. 
And the, so theoretically, you could say, well, the Giants, and I think Ryan was the one bringing this up, that the Giants could go ahead and draft that number one guy. But if they have two guys that they really like at offensive tackle, and they don't see too much of a difference between them, they might be better suited at going with who they would run to take at seven to ensure that nobody leapfrogs the Carolina Panthers, trades into Carolina's range, or rather trades with Carolina at six, moves up to six, and then takes the other position that, let's say, the Giants otherwise were going to go with. Um, And so because you're going to be guaranteed you're going to get at least one of those top two offensive tackles if you pass them at five, if they're both still on the board. So, um, but who wants to handle what you think the Seahawks might do at nine? Um, yeah, I could... I'll, I'll, I'll take the Seattle portion of it. And just to piggyback on what Dan was saying, I do think um, the Giants are going to go offensive tackle. And then with a corner with that seventh pick, which could affect what Seattle's doing at nine, um, because I think if Gardner's off the board, they they very much could go Stingley at seven, which I know um, I think Seattle's a popular place for Stingley. And I think he could, could go there if he's at nine. If not, I think their other options are Jermaine Johnson, like you mentioned. And I think if one of the top three tackles is still on the board, most likely Charles Cross, I think it's between Cross and, and Johnson at that point. All right, let's go to the tree cat. Just because that name's interesting. Treecat, unmute yourself. What do you got for us? Hey, guys. What's up? I was just curious about the Eagles pick. If they if they stay at, I think they're at 15. Do you think they're going to go wide receiver for three years in a row? I mean, that would be pretty unprecedented for really any team. <laughs> it would be unprecedented. Uh, they may have gotten one that works for them uh, last draft, but certainly they haven't had as much luck as they should have been having there uh, at the top pick. I know that, Ryan, you had Chris Olave going to them at number 15 and then grabbing Jordan Davis, who was falling down the board in your last mock that you released last week. Any insight into what you currently think that the Eagles might do with that first pick? Yeah, I think wide receiver is realistic. And, you know, I think Matt Millen with Detroit was the last uh, GM to take a wide receiver three years in a row. That's not exactly a company that you want to be mentioned in. But, you know, if they go to wide receiver, I'll actually give them credit for being willing to admit that Jalen Rager was a mistake uh, rather than sort of like let Jalen Rager beat you twice by sort of digging in your heels and refusing to draft a receiver just because you've already done it two years in a row. Like you missed on him. It's still a need the fact that you've done it two years in a row shouldn't affect your decision to still address a need and get a really good player. And so at, you know, either 15 or 19, it's a need and there's very likely going to be some good options for you on the board. So, you know, I think that they should definitely consider that. I think uh, Chris Olave would be a really good fit for them. You could certainly justify Traylon Burks because he brings sort of a different skill set to the table than you've already got uh, in Devante Smith. You could justify Drake London for the same reason to get sort of a bigger guy to pair with the smaller Smith. So, yeah, I think it's very realistic. All right, we'll go with LJ McGregor next. LJ, unmute yourself and feel free to ask what you got for us tonight. LJ, unmute. Unmute. Oh, I know. Sorry about that. There you go. Hey, um, no worries. What do you got? Hey, first? I was just curious on like number two Detroit Lions. Like they only brought they brought the two 
what are considered the two top quarterbacks in to look at. And there's always going to be somebody that just goes gaga over like Malik Willis's type of athletic ability and everything else like that. And there's always some shocker in the top 10. I've looked at like 50 different mock drafts and they all have 50 different top 10s. And I was just wondering, like, would you be surprised if the Lions took Malik Willis number two overall because they hold the number 32 and 34 pick, which leaves them a lot of a lot of flexibility to either move up or move back and get more picks in the second round or move back into the first because they know they're not going to get them later in the draft at 32. And I, I'm just because there's always some team that goes nuts and does something just totally unpredictable usually. And I think that could be a spot where we'd have just an unpredictable thing where they took Malik Willis second just because of his traits and upside. Yep. Yep. No, great question. Uh, there are teams that throw a wrench into the into uh, all the well laid plans. Dan, what do you think about if they go the Lions? Dan Campbell goes ahead and drafts quarterback Malik Willis there at number two overall. Yeah, I'm probably going to be in the minority here, especially uh, against Ryan and Brennan, who I don't think either one of them believe this. But there's still a small part of me that believes that's going to happen. Um, I. I think it still makes a ton of sense. They kind of, they do need a quarterback. They have um, the kind of built in where they don't need him to play immediately. Um, and like kind of as I said before, I, I think the you know you have to wait to play Malik Willis. But Kenny Pickett is like pro ready. I I don't like buy into that at all. I think Willis could you know, play early enough. Um, and when you look at what um, if. If you're thinking about taking a quarterback, it also makes more sense to do it at two because especially in this class, because we've also said that these quarterbacks are, are just not good, um, you're going to get closer to whatever edge rusher you would take at two um, at, at whoever you take at 32 than you would uh, for a quarterback. Um, in my opinion, between Malik Willis and whatever you would potentially take um, at 32 or, or 30 for um uh in the back part of uh in the back part of, of the first round or early in the second round because I don't think those are guys who are going to you know be stepping in and that I feel like that's almost more of, of wasting a pick than taking that swing of Malik Willis at two would be well I think 32 is it's, it's a pretty interesting pick because that's the last pick for the five year for the extra year so that gives them a lot of access to move around with it because the teams would want to trade up to get that extra year of eligibility of the fifth year at 32. So, I mean, they if they took the quarterback first, they, I'm not a Detroit fan. I could just see it happening. Yeah, just to follow up, I mean, you mentioned how they own 32 and 34. I think one of the reasons that I'd be stunned if they did it at number two is that if they do love one of these quarterbacks, if you look at the trade value chart and you pair those the 32 and 34th pick together – they could trade those two picks and jump up to number 13 overall. So it, there's a pretty low probability a wide a, a uh, quarterback is off the board at that point. So if they, they can just stay at number two, take somebody and they can, you know, just trade back up into the first round and go get the quarterback that they want also. So there's multiple ways that they can get their guy. If in fact, anybody is their guy. All right, thanks for these questions, guys. Let's try to get a couple more in. Uh, Jesse, what do you got for us? Um, for example, you know, we've got the 49ers with Debo Samuel. 
how do you foresee that shaking things up and how do you factor that in? Well, I'll, I'll just go and then one of you guys uh, who are doing the mocks, actually, Brendan, maybe you want to jump in here uh, for the purposes of what we have seen thus far. They aren't accounting for that whatsoever, but it's the reason why they don't have to submit their final mock until Wednesday night. Now, granted, draft day trades do come and they screw a lot of different things up when that when they do occur. Um, so, I mean, the 49ers, if they were to move him, the that would definitely shake up uh, where they currently are picking in the mock. What do you have there, Brendan? What would you – I mean, you're obviously not projecting a trade, uh, but what do you think might be the outcome of that if they do trade Debo? Yeah, I tend not to do that, um, and these masks are just so hard to predict. Um, I actually did do it last year. I had the Patriots trading up for Justin Fields, and obviously that didn't work out that well, so I'm going to – kind of learned my lesson from last year and, and I'm probably not going to have any trades in my final mock this year. What I probably will do instead is just have, if I think a player, for example, uh, Malik Willis to the Steelers, if I think that's going to happen, I'm just going to kind of jam that puzzle piece in there, no matter how it kind of affects maybe the pick before or pick after. Um, because I basically what I'm trying to do in terms of accuracy is just get the player to the, to the team that I think is going to happen. So I'm not going to try to predict if Pittsburgh is going to move up to 10 or 11. As far as the, the Debo Samuel one, um, you know, that I, for something like that, I think the Jets want to come out with a wide receiver at 10. So whether they're picking for themselves and they're the, this Debo trade is off the table. I think they're, they'll just take the wide receiver. They could be picking for the Niners at, at that point, And the Niners are telling them which wide, wide receiver to take. So that, that's how I'm going to factor kind of the Debo Samuel news into to what the Jets are doing at 10. Okay, excellent. Um, let's go Narco. Narco, what do you got for us tonight? Narco, unmute. Yeah, how you doing? Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, my question is kind of, a, it's a, like a three-part question, but all about the, the same team. Um, Vikings at 12 um i know they're very heavy on cornerback they need a cornerback um i know that they like stingley here but i looking at some mocks and stuff i it, it seems like stingley might not be around and do you think if stingley is not there do you think they trade down and if not who do you think they take there Okay, good question there. Um, I know, Ryan, you mentioned – well, both Brendan and Ryan mentioned your conviction that uh, the Vikings were going to look like Trent McDuffie, assuming he's still there. Um, so maybe you can help answer Narco's question here, Ryan. Yeah, I think first and foremost, they're going to try to trade down if Stingley's not there. And maybe even if Stingley is there, they may just see that that's where the most value is because they're sort of in like a – in-between rebuilding mode, sort of like a retooling mode right now. So adding a little bit of draft capital is definitely a priority for them if they can make it happen. But Trent McDuffie, whether it's at 12 or if they trade back and are able to get him a few picks later, I think that's a very strong possibility. And then if they decide to trade down further or maybe trade down multiple times, once you get into the 20s, there's there's quite a few guys that could potentially fill that need for them. So they've got a lot of good options, even if they can't get Stingley. All right, Uncle Spliff, a few days after 420 here. Uncle Spliff, what do you got for us tonight? 
Uh, well, congrats to anybody who got a Walker plus odds. I'm curious, now that the odds have shifted, is there any value on Hutchinson at plus 200 odds? That's a good question. Um, I'll go ahead and go first. Anybody can chime in after me. But uh, about a week, week and a half ago, I was suggesting that if you like Hutchinson to go here, just wait. Just keep waiting because the steam, the smoke that was coming from that fire of Trayvon Walker going number one was there and the odds were dropping on Hutchinson. Um, There are, I'm sure, going to be some people, unless there's a better, stronger connection we hear more news later on that Walker is definitely, that's the Jags guy. Absent that type of information, I still see the train moving in this direction that Walker is going to be that pick. And Hutchinson is just going to get more and more plus odds associated with his selection. Um, and then some of the guys who had the great long shot odds of Walker earlier may come back and just take a little bit off the top for Hutchinson. Um, at, at plus odds close to draft night. So uh, the other thing to keep in mind here is that different books, especially those out in Vegas, are taking these lines down early. So I want, I was alluding to this book earlier, but Circa out in Las Vegas, I believe 5 p.m. local time, so 8 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday, they're no longer accepting props. And they just put them up, I think, today. So um, some of these guys, they got taken to the woodshed so badly um, that they don't want to have anything to deal with it. They only want the props up for a limited amount of time, even though the draft's out in Vegas, and then they take them down um, before that final day. So you do have to figure out what book you're betting at, how close you want to take things to uh, the draft day itself. Anybody else on the squad here uh, have an opinion about Hutchinson? I know, Walker, you were mocking him for a little while there, Brendan, but Ryan, you were on the Hutchinson train at number one overall. Uh, I'll be very curious to see what you end up doing in your final mock. Uh, But do you think that there may be some value just continuing to wait and then take Hutchinson late, absent any other news? Yeah, I mean, I would probably keep waiting and just listen to what's happening. I'm definitely leaning towards Walker now, though, because we've seen multiple reports, some of them conflicting a little bit and what exactly they're reporting. But the one thing that's consistent and what everybody is saying is that Balky, the GM who has final say over the roster, wants Walker. And so it seems like we got to assume that that's the most likely option because the GM is going to get what he wants. Even, even with uh, word that the owner is chiming in and maybe leaning towards Hutchinson, it's, it's, it would be pretty rare, maybe even unprecedented, that a owner demands a pick at the top of the draft and it's not a quarterback. So that it strikes me as uh, it strikes me as odd that that report is even out there. Um, so I would certainly lean towards bulky getting his way and just ending up with Walker. Justin, you got something for us? Hey, Warren, can you hear me? Yep. We got awesome, you, buddy. Man. What do you got? Basically, uh, I just wanted to know, what GMs in the top 10 do you think follow the same metrics as you guys do? You know, y'all mentioned a lot of pass rush, win rate, generating pressure when unblocked. Which of these GMs in the top 10 actually follow the, the proper metrics when making their selections? 
A very good question, because uh, there, there are a few new GMs here, and we're going to have to see what some of these guys will do. Obviously, the Giants have a new GM. We're going to see what he's going to be up to uh, this year. We got hopes and aspirations that some of these guys are going to be utilizing some of the right metrics here, um, but we're not 100% positive. Ryan, do you have some sense? Um, I know it would be nice to have a Tucker go through some of these, uh, but he's not here because he was tracking all these GM hires this past off season. But what do you, what do you uh, think from that question, Ryan? Yeah. I mean, at this point, you know, the advanced statistics have been around for so long that I think it's fair to say that everybody is using some of it. I don't think anybody is completely in the dark on these things, but I will say the teams that are picking in the top 10 are picking in the top 10 for a reason and one of the reasons is that they're not doing this. I think we can pretty confidently say Balky has uh, not all in on this. Um, the Lions, Brad Holmes coming from L.A., uh, he probably is to a pretty high degree. Obviously, it's not entirely his fault that the Lions are where they are. But, uh, you know, other teams, um, the Panthers, Matt Rule is the one that has final say over the roster there. That's not a good uh, thing in this day and age when the head coach has control over your roster. So he certainly is not uh, – you know, up to speed to the degree that some of the other uh, analytically minded GMs are. Uh, Seahawks, Pete Carroll, John Snyder, we certainly know that they are not all in on analytics. So for a lot of these teams, uh, the reason that they're up there is because they aren't. Or for some other teams like the Giants, you know, it's not the current GM's fault that they aren't. Um, I think Joe Schoen probably uh, is certainly uh, more up to speed on that stuff than his predecessor was. So some of these, it's not their fault that they're there, but in general, you know, that's the reason why these teams are in the top 10. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what the giant, what direction the giants head here as I know Dan is as well. Uh, well guys, this has been a lot of fun. A couple things. Number one, give these guys a quick follow before you jump off the show. Number two, make sure you check out Brendan and Ryan's final mocks, which will be posted on Thursday. And we're going to have a lot of post-draft content as well. Still got new articles, new information that comes out between now and Thursday night. I hope you guys are as excited for Thursday to finally get here as we all are uh, as well. Make it a big day. Make it a, a fun event for yourself, whether you're betting on these props or not. Uh, you know, pick out a night dinner, get ready, have a couple of drinks. Uh, get ready for a show. It's going to be a blast. We're going to be recording live videos and doing some other things during the show, uh, during the draft show itself. Uh, that's going to be fun. So tune in, stick around. We're going to have a lot of fun with it and uh, and a lot of great reaction after the picks come out, as well as the day after that. Rich and Dan and the crew are going to be writing up a ton of things, new podcasts that are going to be coming out as well. So big week, busy week ahead. Really looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us tonight. 